Welcome to the American Meteorological Society's podcast series, Clear Skies Ahead, conversations about careers in meteorology and beyond. I'm Kelly Savoy, and I'm here with Rex Warner, and we'll be your hosts. We're excited to give you the opportunity to step into the shoes of an expert working in weather, water, and climate sciences. We're happy to introduce today's guest, David Curtis. He's the Senior Vice President of West Consultants in Folsom, California. Welcome, David. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. David, could you tell us a little bit about your educational background and what sparked your interest in science? Certainly. Um, After high school, I uh, went to Penn State University, uh, where I majored in agricultural engineering. Uh, I graduated in 1972, which was in the depths of the recession after the end of the Vietnam War and had a tough time finding a job in engineering and ended up making milk and ice cream for a year at (laughs) a place called Ideal Farms Dairy in Frederick, Maryland. So after a year of coming home every night with a white uniform stained with chocolate sauce and butterscotch and and strawberries, I decided that I needed to make a career change (laughs) and uh, went to graduate school at the University of Maryland in civil engineering. And a a year and a half later, graduated and took a job with the National Weather Service at their hydrologic research lab in Silver Spring, Maryland. And after I was there a couple of years, they decided I need a little bit more seasoning uh, academically and uh, got an opportunity, a wonderful opportunity as it turned out, to be assigned to MIT to get a PhD in water resources. So I graduated uh, with my degree uh, from MIT in 1982. Could you tell us a little more, David, about what opportunities you pursued in high school, college, or your early career that you felt in retrospect were particularly beneficial to securing the job you wanted in your profession? Well, I got very lucky after graduating from uh, the University of Maryland. In my life plan, I, I kind of had a thing I didn't want to do, and that was work for the government for some reason. I, I didn't want to do that. Was that to do with Vietnam at all and kind of that um, anti-war sentiment? Uh, no, not really. I, I just, I just uh, it felt constraining is kind of the way I had, my perception was at the time. So my uh, professor, uh, Dr. Reagan, came by one day and said, hey, there are three openings at the National Weather Service's hydrologic research lab. Why don't you go check it out? And so I did and went over there and met a very dynamic uh, group of young scientists that were uh, passionate about water resources. And they all, um, it seemed like they were in their late 20s and 30s and maybe early 40s and all excited about what they were doing. And several of them were kind of the preeminent people in their field. At the time, I'd read some of their material uh, as an assignment in grad school. And I said, well, maybe I should go here for a couple of years. And and just by pure osmosis, I might pick up something valuable and that could be um, helpful later on in my career. And as it turned out, uh, it was it opened uh, many new doors that I never thought were possible, including uh, the trip to MIT, which was uh, just a wonderful experience. Wow. That does sound truly lucky. When you were working at the National Weather Service, I know that a lot of people do shift work, but would, was your position um, a Monday through Friday type position or were you, uh, you know, had to change shifts here and there? 
Um, at the National Weather Service in the research lab, that was a um, standard day shift, eight to five arrangement, uh, which was just fine with me. Uh, later, I transitioned to take a position as a flash flood hydrologist at the Northeast River Forecast Center, which at the time was located near Hartford, Connecticut. And that involved a little shift work because uh, floods and weather don't pay any attention to the clock. And typically what happens is the bad stuff occurs at night, weekends or holidays. So that was uh, my experience at the River Forecast Center. But it wasn't uh, the continuous stretch of, of shift work like the typical meteorology office. So you started off on the East Coast and then how did you end up on the West Coast working at West Consultants? Well, after working at the Weather Service, uh, toward the end of my time at the River Forecast Center, I got involved uh, with a fancy new thing called microcomputers. They were brand new at the time, and for the first time, communities could own and operate a local floodwarning system that was automated based on, on the microcomputers. Up until that time, literally, data communication, processing, and so on was done on either mid-range computers or the large uh, standalone computers, which were out of the price range of local communities. But with new technology, miniaturization of electronics, the development of remote operating rain gauges that can communicate by radio to a microcomputer, suddenly it was within the reach of a local community to have a flash flood warning system. So I got involved heavily in that with the National Weather Service and kind of became the kind of leading expert at the time and, and helped offices all over the eastern part of the United States, actually east of the Rocky Mountains, get started uh, with automated local flood warning systems. After a while, um, we decided, a group of us decided that doing that within the framework of the Weather Service, which kind of had tunnel vision around uh, flood forecasting component, the technology that we're using could apply to a variety of things like water quality monitoring, agricultural weather monitoring, fire weather. And every time we went into a community, they said, well, can you do this? Can you do that? And so within the bounds of the National Weather Service, we couldn't do those things. So there were three or four of us that got together and decided that we should form a little company and offer a broader range of, of services related to the flood warning systems to local communities. So was California the best place to start that? Well, the, that's where the technology really started in a program called ALERT, which A-L-E-R-T is Automated Local Evaluation in Real Time. And so that was kind of the focal point across the United States. And it turned out that my partners lived out in California. I was on the East Coast. And uh, as our little company grew, we added some people out in the West Coast, and suddenly I was one person on the East Coast. They were all on the West Coast, and it made a lot more sense to move me as opposed to moving five or six people the other direction. Right. You were the odd man out. <laughs> yeah. So I, it was a great move, and I, and I love being in California. Was that program you were speaking of, did it come out of Silicon Valley as a tech center? Or was it a different area? It was a Bay Area, but I, I wouldn't call it uh, Silicon Valley, uh, which is a little bit south of the Bay Area, but certainly the sure. electronics firm that uh, was the first manufacturer was located in uh, Berkeley. So now you are the senior vice president at West Consultants. Could you walk us through a typical day or an atypical day on the job? Certainly. Um, today's 
experience is a lot different than it was a year or two ago, for sure, uh, with the pandemic. Um, transitioning to video meetings as the primary mode of communication, not only sometimes in the same office with the staff or, or other offices or with clients. Um, and it's worked out a lot better than I think most of us ever, ever dreamed of. So my day is populated with a lot of video meetings. In fact, my personal record, I think, is 12 video meetings in a given day. Wow. Yeah. And um, aside from that, the aspect of communication, the lack of travel, and we can communicate using video, um, it's getting in the morning, checking with staff, uh, seeing where they are in their projects, coordinating with other offices that we're working with and sharing projects. At my level in a company, a lot of the work I do is business development. So that's contacting new clients for potential new projects, uh, following up with older clients to see what they're doing, writing proposals. Uh, since I do a lot with flood warning systems and helping support communities operating flood warning systems, uh, like today we have an atmospheric river event that's about to hit uh, the northern coast of uh, the Pacific Northwest. Um, so I'm checking in on clients to make sure their systems are working properly and everything's up to speed. You know, yeah, I am responsible for some projects myself. And so someplace in that day, I have to find time to actually work on projects. So is it a really large company? Are there a lot of staff and do you have many clients or is it more of a smaller niche? Somewhere in the middle. West Consultants has about 70 people right now. We specialize in kind of more sophisticated, high-end water resources applications. For example, we don't do a lot of standard design work, like for designing a drainage system for a local development, for example. But we do things like uh, supporting the U.S. State Department and the Army Corps of Engineers and helping renegotiate the treaty for uh, the Columbia River system in the Pacific Northwest. The treaty is coming up for renegotiation between Canada and the United States. Corps of Engineers is a, our largest client, and we work with the Corps all over the United States and in some cases internationally, uh, working on uh, water resources issues associated with flood control, water supply, reservoir management, and so on. Hmm, interesting. And how large is the leadership team at West Consultants? I think we have eight, eight offices now, and so the leadership team is basically composed of the office managers. So, you know, it sounds like you do a lot of different things. What do you like most about the job in particular? What I like most about the job is uh, the impact it can ultimately have on people. When I applied to the University of Maryland for my master's degree, it was uh, turned out it was kind of a last minute thing and they required an essay to be submitted. And I had to submit like the next morning and I hadn't prepared an essay. So I literally pulled out a small piece of paper, and it was a small piece of paper, and, and wrote two sentences. Number one, I wanted to learn about my environment. And number two, I wanted to teach two other people about my environment. Two. Two. And then teach them to do two. So I got accepted. And a week later, they offered me a position as a research assistant, and off to grad school I went. And that really speaks to the passion that I have about learning about the environment and communicating about the environment to other people. In my, in my world, the environment is, is water resources and specifically uh, river forecasting and flood forecasting. I think it's really interesting in your essay that you focused on teaching two other people where teaching one person is a net gain where 
you teach one person and they teach one person and they teach one person and so on. However, teaching two people is an exponential gain. Exactly. Where the first two that you've taught teach two more each and so on and so on. And the number climbs quite high. But it's also humble because you're not trying to teach 10 people yourself. You're passing on the knowledge. And it's, it's very humanistic and altruistic, I think. So I wanted to commend you for that approach and those wise words in your essay. So now in the present day, what do you see as some of the biggest challenges in your field of water resources and river forecasting? Interestingly enough, finding, finding the next generation, finding the new people, uh, finding the new people with communication skills. We may talk about this in some other topics uh, in a minute or two, but I found that communication skills are the single most important determinant of long-term career success. And why is that? Well, in college, particularly engineers, and the same is true with meteorologists, they never tell us that we're going to spend our entire careers communicating. And most of the time, we're not prepared for it at the undergraduate or graduate level. I mean, we know math and physics and all that good stuff, but um, rarely do they actually emphasize the need for communication. If you're working in the field, you're communicating with your colleagues, explaining what you've done. You're communicating to clients and proposing new projects. You're briefing other people, briefing senior management up progress on reports. You're presenting at technical conferences. So it's just constant communication throughout your career. And, and so that, that I think, is, is an absolute key. I think it's interesting you say that because we've heard that a lot on these podcasts. And I'm surprised that some of these universities who have these uh, degree programs in engineering and science don't catch on that maybe some of the requirements of the major should be public speaking, presentation skills, you know, other types of communication courses, because that seems to be, like you said, a crucial skill that is going to be needed in the future. There are some that do, like University of Iowa makes a point of doing that. I was really fortunate because um, I had a newly minted PhD assistant professor at the University of Maryland by the name of Dr. Richard McEwen, just recently retired. And he had been the longest tenured professor in civil engineering department history at the university. He was a stickler for communication. Now, this was the time before word processors and easy typing, and we had to handwrite weekly 30-page lab reports. And they would come back, mine in particular would come back, filled with red pencil markings about correction, correcting the English, correcting grammar, everything. I was convinced that he held stock in the red pencil company <laughs> and he was responsible for their profits on an annual basis. We hated the class, absolutely hated it because it was so much work. So fast forward about 25 years and I had the opportunity to be invited back to the university and speak to a joint meeting of the entrepreneurship program, which was jointly administrated between the Department of Civil Engineering and uh, the business school. So 150 people in a room, including my old professor, and I told the story about how much we hated his class. But 
at that time, looking back 25 years, we recognized that it was probably the single most important class that we had because of his emphasis on communication. So how often do you use a red pen, David, or a red computer type when you're working with your fellow colleagues trying to improve communications? I don't restrict myself to red. <laughs> it's like <laughs> whatever pen and pencil I can grab. But it's really interesting, too, because um, our profession, we're blessed with so many people working from overseas, you know, that come here to the United States. So my staff, you know, I have a woman from Brazil. I have a woman from Iran. Uh, you know, one woman just left from India. And so for the most part, English is a second language. So, you know, that's another layer of being able to get people introduced to this really, really difficult, complex language that we have and getting verb tense and all that right for communication. So there's that element. But even English speakers like myself, it's just basically constant learning and constant reminder to pay attention to grammar. It it counts. I have an incredible amount of respect for scientists who are communicating often very complex ideas into their second language, yeah. often English, and bring that message to an audience. It's a, it's a true skill, and I, I, it deserves commendation. I mean, I, I feel like I barely speak English at times. <laughs> I, have, I have no idea. I mean, this, the one woman who works for me is from Brazil, and she literally came and went to the University of Iowa having never really spoken English before and kind of in graduate school, learn how to speak and write English. So David, you talked a lot about water resource planning and management and um, its importance. And, you know, when it comes to climate change, what are some ways that states can incorporate that into their planning? Well, first is recognize that climate change actually exists. Um, You know, it seems like half the states, for largely political reasons, seem to ignore science and ignore the basic facts about what's happening, you know, around us. And so I think getting over that hurdle where we have agreement across the political spectrum so that that message carries down to the populations that we're actually trying to lead is is really critical. I mean, that, that lack of acceptance gets in the way of a lot of of good policy and and good decisions that could be made around our future regarding the climate. So we have the technology, we we know things can be done. We, you know, we're we're seeing uh, surges of of solar power and wind power and even geothermal power and other alternative sources and advances in battery and storage and like Tesla automobiles and so on. So we know that these things can be addressed, but it, it, to really get the momentum shifted, it will take a political shift to do it. And that means that there's a whole bunch of folks that have to recognize the science around them. Well, let's hope 2021 is a bit better, he- heads in the right direction at least. Do you have any optimism, David, that the political climate will improve and benefit the environmental climate in the future? Yes. I, I, you know, I do. I mean, I'm the eternal optimism and, and quite frankly, the last four years have been a little hard to keep that generated, but uh, I'm, I'm buoyed by the uh, apparent direction that the new administration's taking and applaud their efforts to do it. And I'm optimistic about the future. I think there's going to be a point where it just can't be ignored anymore and hopefully uh, it won't be too late. 
It, interestingly enough, I had a friend, Chris Mealy, uh, went to school at MIT with, and he, he was at the Princeton Geophysics Lab working in climate modeling. And 20 years ago, he told me, we talked about climate change, and he told me that at that time, the signal hadn't emerged from the noise. He said, but it will, and when it does, it's going to be late. Mm-hmm. And I always remember that. It really rung true, especially now. I've heard that it's not so much about prevention anymore as it is about mitigation. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there's so much momentum built into the climate change in terms of the thermal heating and the, the changes that are occurring in the polar regions of the country, which are warming much faster than the rest of the globe. And there is a tremendous amount of momentum behind that that is not going to be shut down anytime soon. So I think we are in the mode of mitigation now as opposed to prevention. So David, this is a career podcast. So I'd like to ask you, what advice do you have for our student listeners or job seekers or other folks who are looking to establish their career in water resources or hydrometeorology or a related field? And then second, what would you look for in a resume from one of these job seekers if you were hiring? Good question. First thing for me is to learn the basics. Um, Our world is changing so fast that it's really hard to pick like a current topic and expect that will be there for the rest of your career. I've had maybe five or six different markets that I've been involved in that did not exist the day I walked off the campus of Penn State University when I graduated with a bachelor's. Could you list a couple of those just for our curiosity? Climate change, automated flood warning systems, radar rainfall estimation using the Doppler radar, for example. None of those existed when I was an undergraduate. So for me to be prepared for that is learn the basics. You know, the math hasn't changed. The physics haven't changed since 300 years ago. Learn that and develop an instinct for what the equations mean and and what the physics actually mean. Be incredibly open to new opportunities. Don't wall yourself in to a certain mode of thinking. Be open. Be absolutely committed to lifelong learning. And also, you know, we talked about this before, but build your communication skills. And the communication skills are an element that I look for in the resumes. Uh, We as a company uh, kind of look at the master's degree as the entry level. That is a minimum standard. Next thing I'm looking for is the ability to communicate. So what types of things um, could students do to help improve their communication skills? Would you be looking for uh, people who did internships where they were able to you know, present or uh, train people? Or would you be looking for like, you know, public speaking or someone who is in debate club or something like that? Or a blog or? All the above. I mean, any opportunity to build that skill set, opportunities to speak, opportunities to write, whether it's a blog or doing a paper, presenting at a technical conference, all of those things. Quite often, and particularly for, um, a little bit older applicants, you know, we'll ask them to do a presentation for us. It's really easy to do now with with Zoom and and some of the other video platforms. So we'll ask them to do a presentation and just attest that. That's definitely some good advice. So thank you for joining us 
But before we end the podcast, we always like to ask our guests one last fun question. And I wanted to ask you, what is your all-time favorite book? Well, I have, I have several, but one book that I, I just really love, and it's a little-known book titled Appropriately Enough Storm by an author whose name is George Stewart. Stewart was an English professor at the University of California, and he wrote this account of a 1935 Pacific storm that originated near Japan. Now, the book was published in 1941. As the forecasters tracked this storm, and the two characters were a junior forecaster and a senior forecaster, and together they decided that they would name the storm, and they called the storm Mariah. And the storm transited across the Pacific, hit California with wind and heavy rain and floods, and it was it's a marvelous story about the whole process of forecasting, which rings true today. I give that to my staff to read as an example of kind of the complete picture of the forecasting. Now, the technology is different. What exists in California in 1941 is different than what exists today, but all the elements are remarkably accurate. That story called Storm later inspired uh, several cultural iconic events, and, and one is uh, inspired a song called They Called the Wind Mariah, which was part of the hit uh, Broadway show Paint Your Wagon in the early 1950s, later made into a movie in 1969 with Lee Marvin and Clint Eastwood. And the guy that sang that song stole the show from the superstars that were in the movie. Uh, even today, 75 years later, uh, well, not quite 75 years for Maria, but Maria Carey, her name was selected based on that song by her parents. Hmm. Interesting. Wow. That's a lot of star power. You know, the, the song has been covered by dozens of artists over the last 75 years, and it's a remarkable uh, song. And if you ever hear the version by Harvey Presnell, who did it in the 1969 movie, it's, it's worth listening to. I didn't find out the book until later in my career, but I, I remember there was a Disney movie or a Disney episode uh, made about the, the book and, and kind of uh, depicting a, a big storm. The Kingston Trio covered the song in the early 1960s as part of the folk song craze at the time. And I remember vividly those songs. And kind of today, I, I kind of credit that for at least initial inspiration for what I'm doing in my career. Well, that sounds really interesting book. I, I, I'm going to go look for that one at the library. I'm very interested in that. Uh, it's worth a read, yes. You sound like a music lover, David, and you're in Folsom. So I have to ask, are you a Johnny Cash fan? I have a Johnny Cash cycling jersey because we have a Johnny Cash bicycle trail. goes right past Folsom Prison uh, near our house. So, yes. Good to hear. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your work experiences and all your other stories with us. It was a true pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. It was a great time. Thank you. Well, that's our show for today. Please join us next time. Rain or shine. Clear Skies Ahead, Conversations About Careers in Meteorology and Beyond is a podcast by the American Meteorological Society. Our show is produced by Brandon Kroos and edited by Peter Trepke. Our theme music is composed and performed by Steve Savoy, and the show is hosted by Rex Horner and Kelly Savoy. You can learn more about the show online 
at www.ametsoc.org slash clear skies and can contact us at skypodcast at ametsoc.org if you have any feedback or if you would like to become a future guest.